You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two. One. How you doing, Garrett? I'm doing well. How are you, Dave? Good. Good. Thanks for putting this one together. This is pretty cool because you reminded me, which was great. Uh, we did an episode with uh, Brian Mars quite a while ago on like jetty fishing, and uh, and you've been doing a lot of it. So we're gonna we're gonna talk jetty fishing and maybe talk a little about your background. Give people a little update. You're on the podcast episode two thirty six. It's been about two years. Uh, so tell us what's been going on the last couple of years. Then we'll jump into jetty fishing. Well, obviously COVID shut a lot of things down, so that changed the pattern of of what I normally do, which was go to shows and do stuff with clubs and things like that. So I took a year basically at the peak of COVID and didn't really do much, just fished and worked. And then after that, I kind of realized, well, if I can't go to you know the expos or the shows, I'll reach out to local clubs. So I've been doing a lot of work with local clubs where I do a presentations for them and things like that. So that's what I've been up to um, with that being said. And then I've also gotten into some, a little bit of some competitive fishing because again, there was just no, we weren't meeting and hanging out with other guys who are really into the the sport of fly fishing and fly tying because we were all kind of separated. So when competition started popping up here in Oregon, started doing them. So hmm. did a couple, a few years ago. And then this year, the timing just hasn't worked out for me to do any this year, but been seeing them, you know, following them and tracking them and seeing what I can do with them and yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been a cool experience. I'm definitely glad I I've tried it. And those yeah. who haven't, who have their own opinions formulated about it, I'd recommend trying it because I've never been around a group of anglers like that. Or I guess it's not very often you're around a group of anglers that are so into fly fishing because they have to be in it. They have to be doing it. They have to be practicing it. They're always da 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 with with fly fishing because they're trying to be the best or they want to be the best. Yeah. Wow. Is it a long process to get into these events or how does that work? No, it's actually really simple. Flycomps.com is the main hub here in the United States and you just make an account with them, which is free. And then you have to register with Team USA, which is $75 a year. 
and then you can start signing up for competitions. And so there's certain regions, the United States is broken down into four. We have the West, the Midwest, the Northeast, and the Southeast. And so you have to compete in your region. So I live in Oregon, so I can compete in Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, Nevada, I think Wyoming, Utah, and Montana, and Arizona. And then the next chunk of states is the Midwest zone. So that's all the way from New Mexico to and Texas and includes like Minnesota. So they're huge blocks because the United States is so big, but yeah. you compete in those and then you start earning points and then those points qualify you for regionals. Uh, and then right. once you compete in regionals and if you do well there, then you go to nationals. And if you do well there, then you're on the international team, which then allows you to go compete internationally. But the competition itself, they should be free. I mean, the most I've paid is going to be your travel and then if you do a still water competition you're gonna have to rent a boat if it's a boat based one but usually you split the cost so if the boat rental for the day is 75 bucks you only have to pay the 37 dollars because you're sharing the boat with somebody else oh right yeah you're your competitor is it your competitor you're sharing the boat with yeah it's kind of a weird system here in in the still water competition because at the international level you might be in the boat with someone from new zealand or poland or canada and you're technically going against them. But when you're at the mini level, what they call a mini comp, you're sharing it with somebody you're technically competing against. But I mean, at the mini level, people are pretty respectful and helpful. No one's going to tell you what flies or line to use, but no one's going to try to sabotage you. So that's, you take that for what it's worth. No one's going to be like, this fly's working really great. You should try this fly 99% right. of the time. Yeah, And no one's going to be like, oh, you're using a, a type three. You should really be using a type three sweep. Like no one's doing that. They'll do that afterwards. But during the competition, no one's doing that. But no one's going to be like, well, I'm going to put Garrett, who's not controlling the motor this session. I want to put him in the super shallow weedy water so I can have the best water. And he's just screwed for the competition. That might happen internationally, but huh. not at the mini level, typically. Gotcha. So... Wow. So this is great. So, I mean, it sounds like it's pretty easy to get going. I love this because, well, we just, just today, as we speak, Pete Erickson, who's our Euro nymphing guru uh, running, you know, we're heading out to fish kind of the Henry's Lake, you know, South Fork and all that stuff here next week. But Pete just won the gold in the master's competition. Well, at least I actually I've say this. I hope I'm right. I just heard this from somebody else, but he just won the gold. And it's amazing because there's this whole th network of like, we've had Devin on, you know, and I haven't had as many of the juniors or the, what's the, the youngest section called? I think it's just called youth. Yeah, youth. That's right. So I haven't had any, uh, too many youth on here yet, but yeah, it's this whole world, you know, and I think it's really interesting. I, th I think it's really, I think, you know, you hear about it, a lot of the great tips and techniques come from all the comp stuff, but tell us this out of your, you know, you're out there. What would be a tip? Did you learn anything you could share with us from your competition this last year? It becomes your full-time job when it comes to fishing, and that's part of the reason why I've pulled a little bit back from it. I'm glad I experienced it and got to participate in it, but I was going to do a river competition up in Washington uh, this fall, and I had some car issues, and I decided to back out just because I wanted to make sure I was good with a vehicle. I didn't want to get stranded up in Yakima. So um, I backed out of it, but I was doing some practice for it uh, on my local river, and it just... It felt like I was going into the mines. It felt like it was just work. And I kind of had this realization where at this point with everything being opened up and things being more, people are getting together and doing stuff. Like I'm doing yeah. a ton of work with my local club. I'm the fly tying chair at my local club and secretary. So I host a fly tying night the third Wednesday of every month in the Lynn Ben County area. We have it. I host it in Lebanon. 
Oh, okay. Is this on? Is this all on in person or is, is this online too? Oh, yeah, all in person now. So everything's in person. So we have board meetings and we have general club meetings and fly tie and stuff. And when I go and do presentations, like I just reached out to a bunch of clubs here in Oregon and all their stuff is in person. So we're no longer doing the Zoom meetings, which I think in a lot of ways is really nice because in person, I think has a different feel. I don't know if I talked about it on my last episode, but when I learned deer hair fly time, which is what I think most people would know me from, what really put me over the edge was I was watching a lot of Pat Cohen's DVDs and I was really, I was getting it a little bit, but then when I sat down and actually tied flies with someone who stacked deer hair, things clicked a lot better. Oh, right. So there's that online stuff works fine. Like it bridges the gap enough, but in person really changes it. Yeah. It's never as good. That's the thing about it. The in-person obviously is for sure the best. The nice thing about the Zoom stuff and everything is that it allows you to, you know, and Rick Hayfley said this when he, you know, I'm sure you know Rick, he, when he came on the podcast recently, he he talked about that, He's but he does these things all around the country. So for him, Zoom has been huge because now he doesn't have to travel to Cleveland to do a session with one of his local groups or one of the groups out there. He can just go on Zoom and it's, you know, it's not as good, but it's close. Right. And it also tends to be more affordable for clubs. So clubs tend to, oh, yeah. at least out here in the West, they don't charge a ton for your yearly membership. So if you want to pay someone to come out, I mean, if you're paying a guy from Minneapolis to come out to Albany, Oregon, you probably are going to have to cover their flight. You're going to have to put them in lodging. You got to cover some meals and you got to pay for their time. And so that bill can stack up where if it's a Zoom call, you're just paying for their time. Yeah, that's a good point. So a lot of clubs, they made it a lot more accessible to be able to do Zoom for that reason. Um, But the in-person has just a different feel and a very different charm fly fishing clubs tend to be dominated by a lot of the older generation and so sometimes the technology can just it's almost more harm than good at a certain point so i'm glad we're doing stuff in person again it's nice to go back out and do that stuff it's fun to meet people shake hands put faces to names and stuff like that that everyone's you know most people don't have a a studio grade setup in their house so it's you know things sound a little clearer things make more sense it's easy to ask questions gotcha things like that this is good no, I love it. I, I think local clubs, I mean, I think obviously fly shops are, you know, the backbone of fly fishing in the industry, but I think the clubs are, I mean, probably we don't talk as much about that, but I think that's maybe, you know, as important, right? Because people, a lot of times, if you don't know how to fly fish or you heard about it, like what's the first step going to a club, would you say going to a club or a fly shop is kind of equal? Or would you say if somebody's brand new, where, where would, you know, would you send them? Well, our club works with a local fly shop. So my club's called the Lynn Ben Family Fly Fishers. You can look them up online. And then we partner with our local fly shop, which is Two Rivers Fly Shop. And so if you go to the fly shop and you say you're a new person, the owner of the fly shop says, well, you should join this club because then you have people that you can fish with and tie flies with and communicate with. And then the way we are symbiotic is then we'll send people to his shop. So when I do my fly tie night, I send the shop owner, which I've been friends with for years now because I've just been going there for almost... I think it's 15 years now. Who's the owner of the run in that shop? His name's Mitch Smith. Mitch Smith, okay. And so I've been going there. The shop's been around for 20, 20 plus years or whatever. Wow. So I'll go in there and I'll just bring him the PDF or a printout of the fly that we're going to tie the next month. And then when someone from the club comes in and says, hey, I'm going to go to Garrett's fly tie night with the club. What do I need? He gets it for him and then he gives him a discount because our club member. That's just how we do it with our system, but... Every club's different. Every club has their own system, but that allows us to really foster growth and development with everybody because it's always more fun when you're doing well with whatever, you know, whatever fishing thing you're doing. So 
Yeah, and and then my club president is actually working with the Northwest Expo, which is the big fly tying oh, expo yeah. that's in March. He's in charge of the expo this year. So, oh, cool. Oh, who's that now? That is Bob Elliott. Bob Elliott. Yeah, I think I talked to somebody who uh, reached out to me and wanted to put together a, an episode on that. Yeah, that's we'll shout out to that's the fly tying the north. Is it? The, it's still the Northwest Fly Tying Expo, right? Yeah, and the website is just nwexpo.com, and they're, they're posting stuff. You'll see me on there because I'm with the club, and so their tech guy is live streaming our fly tying nights, and then he's oh, taking nice. those live streams and breaking them down or putting the whole thing on their website. So if you want to see me tie flies, I'm also on there as well. Togiak River Lodge is the Alaskan adventure every fly fisherman dreams of. The lodge specializes in remote and exclusive fishing trips for all five species of salmon, plus rainbows, Dolly Varden, and much more. Togiak is the only lodge with access to 30-plus miles of river, the best guides, the best boats, and lots of fish with little pressure. I'll be heading up there this summer, so check in with Jordan and the crew right now to find out what they have available. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togiak to learn more right now. That's Togiak, T-O-G-I-A-K, to discover that wilderness experience you've been looking for. Do you have any uh, YouTube uh, videos out there? Not at the moment. It's something I've been thinking about doing this winter, though. I just I do a lot with Instagram. So Instagram, I post a ton of, of pictures. I'm the guy who fills up a whole fly box full of flies, and that seems to get people pretty excited. So yeah, we'll check you out on Instagram. And what's your Instagram? Uh, it's just my name. It's just Garrett Lesko. Yeah, Garrett Lesko. Perfect. Well, <clears throat> let's jump in. I think. We're probably going to circle around to some of this stuff, but let's talk about uh, kind of jetty fishing. And, and we're going to break this out. Um, like we said, we had that episode with Brian Mars. We'll put a link in the show notes on uh, this was a while ago with him. So we're going to do an update. But take us there. What what it, When we think jetty fishing now, are we talking, can we be doing this anywhere in the West Coast? Uh, you know what I mean? Like is the stuff that you do, do you think it applies to other areas as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. So. But shout out to Brian for sure, because he's one of the first guys when I was just looking into if it was possible. He was one of the only people in Oregon, as far as I could tell, that was doing it and then mm. talking about it. So wow. he's definitely a pioneer in the whole thing. Yep. And let me just say, Garrett, it's episode uh, 97 with uh, Jetty Fishing with Brian. Mark. That was a while ago. That was probably four yeah. years ago. That was. That was 2019. So that was, that was four years ago. Yep. There you go. So yeah, it was... I've talked to him personally. He runs the Orvis store up in the Portland area. So I've talked to him about it and chatted with him because there was really no one else doing it. And so when it comes to jetty fishing, jetties are kind of a, on, along the West Coast for rockfish, jetties are kind of an Oregon thing. There's a couple in Washington and a few in California, in the Northern California area. But in reality, just because of the topography of the land here and how our rivers come into the ocean, jetties are used as a way to stop the bay is from being covered with sand. So as waves hit the beach, they're going to be angled slightly north. And then they will push that sand over the mouth of the river and then close it off. And then it takes flood water or runoff to reopen the bay. And so to allow ships to not have to deal with that and worry about if the bay is going to get closed, they build these jetties, which create what they call a bar, which is the area in between the north and south jetty. Yep, that's it. And I was going to say the most famous one, uh, or the probably the largest, is the Columbia River, right? Uh, and right, but that's a total different deal than what we're probably talking about today. So it's a huge jetty there that they've built there. But there's some um, near Tillamook, like Barview, and then probably the most famous one. If anyone watches uh, the Discovery Channel, there was obviously the show Deadliest Catch, which was out of Alaska, out of Dutch Harbor. But then they had a show called Deadliest Cove, which was out of Newport, Oregon. 
And so that was all about Dungeness crab fishing instead of king crab fishing. But that's all out of Newport, Oregon. And that's where I mostly fish out of is out of Newport off the South Jetty. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cool. So you're down in Newport. Yeah, Newport. But there's some in, oh gosh, there's some in Walpole. There's some in Florence. There's some in, there's all along the Oregon coast just because of how our rivers are. There's a lot of jetties. That is really interesting. So I didn't even think about that. So you've got all these rivers in Oregon. A lot of them have jetties. The And what's the one in, um, the one down there in Newport? What's the river coming in there? It would be the Uquina. Oh, that's the Aquinas. Yeah. Okay. And, but then if you go to California or up to Washington or even BC, you're saying they, the rivers are different. So they literally don't have as many of these types of jetties. It's more natural. Well, okay. So for example, like with Depot Bay, Depot Bay is just North of Newport. It's famous. I think it's one flew over the cuckoo's nest was shot a scene there. It's the world's smallest harbor. Oh, no way. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's has its <laughs> little Oregon charms. So, you know, there's like the awesome. Goonies were shot Astoria. Everyone has their like little thing, little claim to fame about it. But the way the topography is of Depot Bay is there's no need for a jetty because it has natural rock structures. Just the way the river flows in there doesn't, it's flowing through such hard rock. There's no sand to be pushed in the way. Oh yeah. So for example, up in Washington, there's the Southern coast of Washington has a couple jetties, obviously like Illawaku where spawn fly fishing is. That's a fly shop that does a lot of jetty fishing, but there's like some around in that in Southern Washington. But when you get North, you're in the sound. So there's no it's not the same kind of ocean as just the Pacific right. Ocean. And then California, it gets really cliffy. So there's not a lot of harbors and bays down there. And then when you get down south, the ocean's just not as rough. There's not, you know, oh, if you're in Los Angeles or San Diego, it, there are jetties down there for sure to like create harbors and bays and marinas and things like that. But it's not like Oregon has these really long, very rocky jetties that are with huge rocks and are very easily accessible some let you drive right on top of them some let you drive right next to them so oregon has that s- specifics i'm not saying the stuff doesn't apply to what we call natural rock structure like you could fish at a depot bay but you're not fishing off of a man-made jetty you're fishing off a natural rock structure and that's the idea here is that the cool thing about these jetties is it allows you to good access and then the fish kind of love them because it creates like a deep like cover and things like that so is that is that kind of how it works absolutely so just like the if anyone's seen the aerial views of like Dubai and they have those like the islands that they've built out of sand where they have like the world, which is it looks like a, a projection of the world map, but it's islands made out of sand and they have oh, wow. other designs in Dubai that, you know, it's not great because you're doing this man-made structure in the ocean, but it is good because you're creating basically a synthetic ecosystem for marine life. And so, yes, the jetty stops the natural flow of sand moving up and down the coast and they have to dredge. Uh, the bar in between the two jetties to make sure that there's no sand gets in the way there. And they have to do this man-made maintenance. But the benefit is if you've created this, basically, I don't want to say reef, but you've created this structure that is a fish magnet. It attracts plankton, which attracts the bait fish, then which attracts the larger fish. And it just makes it really easy to get access to them without having to have a boat or try to climb over rocks or off of cliffs or anything. I mean, where I fish, I can unlock and lock my car from where I stand. I'm 150 feet from my car at most. That's amazing. Yeah, you got the you got doors open, music playing, <laughs> that you sort could. of thing. Right, not I mean, quite there. <laughs> yeah. We joke about that because we have the uh, the turtle box and some of these things out here, right, that you hear Oh, about yeah. And if you were right? hanging out there and you want to spend the day, like, sure, why not? I mean, as long as you're, you know, the thing is, is the nice thing is, is there's not a lot of people doing it. So you're not going to see a ton of people out there. Right. Are there a lot of people, so there's not a lot of people fly fishing. Are there many people using conventional gear out there? There will be, uh, typically. I mean, there's a few guys that will be out there, especially during the daytime. 
And so you'll go out there and you'll, um, you could see upwards of like maybe 20 or 30 guys, but the South Jetty, I think is like a mile and a half long total from tip to tail kind of thing. And it is just not, I mean, I joke about it. You could have 300 guys out there fly fishing and no one would ever cast into each other. Oh, wow. This is great. There's so much room. And so it's really great if you want to have like a camaraderie and fish. And so I'm part of a Facebook group. I'm a moderator on there. I didn't start it, but I'm a moderator on the Facebook group called Oregon Saltwater Fly Fishing. And it's basically it's basically just about jetty fishing. It's guys posting about jetty stuff and asking questions about it. And I try to do a meetup and a fish along once or twice a year during the summertime on the jetty. And that way, people who are interested, who want to kind of DIY it, can come and DIY it with us. And that allows it, there's plenty of room. We can line up eight guys and no one feels crowded. So it's really nice. Unlike where, like if I brought eight guys to even the Deschutes River, which isn't a small river, you start feeling a little cozy really quick. Yeah. Yeah, you would. You would. Wow, this is great. So there's lots of room. Um, so how do you, let, let's just break this out. Like first you out, you know, you have this giant jetty. Where do you start? How do you know where to find these fish? What fish are we talking about here? Okay. So we'll start with how do you find fish? So as I said, most jetties are a north and south deal because you have to create a, a shipping lane in between them. And so usually one jetty is going to be your deep jetty and one jetty is going to be your more shallow jetty. So essentially the topography is does the rocks just go straight down to the bottom or is it going to be more of a gradual plane out? You want the jetty that goes straight down. You want the deeper jetty. So in the case gotcha. of Newport, that's the south jetty. But in the case of Barview up near Tillamook, that's going to be the north jetty. So you just have to know that either from talking to people like me or you can get apps or find topography maps or different barometric maps and figure out which jetty deepens out the fastest. That's the jetty you want. So that's step one. And then step two, the fish that you're going after is the quick answer is you have no idea. Oh, really? <laughs> you really have no idea. So most fish you're going to catch are going to be black rockfish. That's going to be your main quarry. Um, and then your next probably most common fish is going to be the, the copper rockfish, which just looks like the black one, but it's brown. And then you have the chance of things like cabazon, which is the way I describe it. It's a rock with fins. Hmm. But they have a short season here in Oregon. They open July 1st and close, I think, at the end of September. So it's a really short season for them. But they're very sought after. People really want a cabazon because their main food is crab and shellfish. Oh, wow. And so their meat tastes like crab and shellfish. Amazing. Amazing. So people really want them. So they have a, you can only keep one a day, I think, and they're short limit. But so cabazon, then there's other sculpin. There's things like an Irish Lord, which is a type of sculpin. It's just basically a giant sculpin that's bright red. It's a cool looking fish. And then there's obviously kelp greenling and then the main greenling that everyone's after, which is the lingcod. Lingcod are very rare. They come in in the springtime and springtime is like February, March, April kind of time. And they'll come in shallow to spawn and they can get kind of aggressive when they do that. The issue with lingcod is, is they have very sharp teeth. So to land them is very challenging and they're also very strong. So on a fly rod, Fly rods are really good for fish that run distances. They're not really good for fish that you need to lift. And so a lingcod and rockfish and, a, you know, saltwater fish out here on the Oregon coast, those are fish you have to lift. And so you really have to put the the wood to them and try to pull them in because you, the way to describe it is you're fishing over the top of their house and then pulling them into their house and you have to stop that from happening. And it's really, really tough, but it's really fun because it's a very active kind of fishing. And so those are the main rockfish kind of that you're going to pick up there. And then the other fish that you could catch is a salmon as a bycatch on accident hmm. kind of thing. And so wow. Cooper Nowak is, um, 
the guy who started the Facebook group, and he's he's one of those guys who is a wanderer. He moves around a lot, and he hasn't been in Oregon for a while. I think he's coming back this month um, and doing a lot more fishing, but he loves the Oregon coast, and he does a ton of fishing out there, and he was kind of famous in the local area because he was out there just fishing off the jetty, threw a cast out there. All of a sudden, the line came tight, and it just started burning drag, and it was a Chinook. That's so cool. And so he was able to land a Chinook while fishing for rockfish. And it was like, he was a superstar. People were like, I can't believe you caught that because <laughs> no one goes out to the jetty, even with conventional tackle in Newport for Chinook. It just doesn't happen. And so the best guess that we've come up with is it was just chasing herring and it came a little bit too shallow and saw a blue and white fly and just decided to take a gamble on it. Yeah, because those Chinook or salmon are coming in, probably staying in the channels and just shooting through down up the jetty. Right, because they're following herring or squid or shrimp migrations. And so in the case of in the summertime, we have a lot of herring that move through in the early summer. And so that's our guess is that herring were coming in and they were just chasing the herring. And he just got really lucky, right place, right time kind of thing. We've got Daniel on today from Northern Rockies Adventures. He's here to share some of the Northern BC, some fishing tips today. How are you doing, Daniel? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Today I'd like to talk about why I love to fish for Arctic grayling. Nice. Yes. And Arctic grayling are a species that I love catching. It's been a while up in Alaska was the last time I was out for them. They're this amazing, beautiful, colorful fish. So tell us why you love uh, grayling. Yeah. I just can't stop fishing for them. They're, they're always so keen to take a fly. Um, and they put on one heck of a fight for their size. They're incredibly feisty. Um, I kind of call them our little Northern, uh, sailfish. Um, just based off of the beautiful dorsal fin that they have. They're just an excellent fly fishing uh, species. They slurp dries. Uh, they'll go for they'll go for nymphs. Uh, even in the choppiest rivers, you'll you'll find them. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, we're going to be uh, following up with you, and we've got an episode with you coming up here uh, December 20th, uh, 2023. The Founders episode will be episode 540, so if anybody's listening in the future... They could check that out and get the full story. But we're going to be doing some more of these little short snippet uh, uh, intros as well. So uh, until we talk to you again, Daniel, thanks again. Thank you. Well, looking forward to it. Well, when you're out there fishing, so you're not thinking specifically, well, talk about that. How like flies, gear, like design of your flies, are, are you, th- you know, what sizes, um, you know? Yeah. Like, so I talked yeah. about this. I wrote a blog post on my website, uh, Oregon Fly Tying, about design for rockfish. And what I found is, is the main quarry for rockfish is going to be baitfish. They're after baitfish of some kind. And so that can be smelt, sand lances, anchovies, herring, perch, something that they can target that's our main thing they'll eat anything just like a freshwater bass would whatever gets near them they'll eat it so you're looking for flies in that two to four inch range so nothing too big and then probably the tried and true fly the fly that everyone um that i don't want to say i can guarantee success on but is the most confidence i can say is a clouser a clouser minnow um you can tie it with deer hair but deer hair tends to be fragile in the coast um the thing i tell people as far as like safety and about the ocean Everything's sharp, everything's slippery. Even if it doesn't look sharp or slippery, just assume it is, because it probably is. I mean, everything. There's barnacles on stuff, there's jagged rocks, there's algae, there's seaweed, there's something. I wear studded boots when I'm out there, huh? and sometimes it's even too slippery for studded boots. Wow. So it's da- it could be dangerous, right? Because you don't want to fall off that jetty. Right, because the water on the Oregon coast is not warm. It is very cold, and depending on the time of year you're going, it can be really cold. And so... Just know that. And so deer hair being a natural material flows really nice and 
catches a lot of fish and people love deer hair. I'm tying up a bunch of deer hair clousers for salmon, a salmon trip I'm going on later this fall. So you're doing deer hair, not bucktail. Oh yeah, bucktail yeah. as your clouser material. And it performs really well, but it's not super durable. So what I've switched to, I would say 90% of the clousers that I fish are going to be synthetic. And so I want to use what they call SF blend or Steve Farrar blend. It's a polypropylene um, material that has flash blended into it. Oh, nice. And so I add more flash to it because the bait fish tend to be very silvery and very flashy. So you really can't do too much flash typically. And so if I had to pick one color of a clouser to tie and or to buy, it would be a white and chartreuse clouser. That tends to be the the bread and butter kind of clouser. And then if you're going to tie your own, use a good hook, use a gamagatsu, use an A-Rex, use an owner hook, use a good hook. Because these fish don't have soft mouths, they have very hard mouths. And then have, um, I tried for the first time when I was going out there years ago, I was using lead eyes because that's what everyone uses for clousers. And the issue with lead eyes is, yes, they're very heavy because they're lead, but they're very soft. So if you ever ding a rock either on your retrieve, which you definitely will, and you'll probably ding rocks on your back cast, uh, your lead eyes can just snap right off. And then all of a sudden you have a fly that you think should be sinking at a certain rate is now no longer sinking at that rate because it doesn't have the lead eyes anymore. Which, I mean, if the fish are in a frenzy, it really doesn't matter, but it sucks when you're trying to search for fish and you're trying to find a fish that you want and at the right depth and you think that you're counting down 10 seconds and it's it's not getting as deep as you thought it was. So I've switched over to using brass eyes. They're not as heavy as lead, but they still invert the fly. So when I tie a clouser, I'm using brass eyes on those and I just buy the largest ones I can get my hands on, which I think that makes them four and a half millimeter eyes. So they're, they're big, but... I mean, the fish aren't picky when they're really going after stuff, but a clouser is a good go-to. Um, the other flies I would have on deck would be, I mentioned spawn fly fishing up in Illawaku, Washington. They have a fly called the jetty worm. And so it's a cool fly. It is mop chenille for the tail. It is a uh, flat uh, diamond braid for the body. Then it's a mixture of rubber legs semi-seal synthetic seal dubbing and a schloppen collar for the collar and then they have their own proprietary tungsten bead which is a football shaped tungsten bead this flies tied on a jig hook and that's awesome and the tungsten beads look great and they they're really really heavy and i think they're fantastic the problem is is they tend to be pretty expensive and people really want them so sometimes the size you want might not be in stock so what i've done in the interim is use the same brass eyes I use on my clousers and then just a lot of lead wire. Okay. So, and I'll put a link out spawn fly fish. I see they have some videos and stuff too. So we'll get a link out to them in the show notes. And so basically you're putting a lot of weight on your fly. I mean, that's the idea. Or, or are you also using, you know, with fly line, talk about that. How are you, you know, maybe talk, let's walk us through. So we got the fly now, um, talk about the line, the rod, and then how we get down to the right level. Okay, so yeah, so flies, those two are probably my go-to. And then if they're ever pushing bait, the other fly I'll use is a finesse game changer. And that's kind of something I've discovered with my fishing. And a finesse game changer doesn't have any weight at all. But when they're really pushing bait, they're usually close to the surface. Last time I was out there, I had them busting anchovies basically at my feet. So they'll bust bait fish just like any other saltwater fish would. And you'll see them busting them on the surface. And it's when they're in the eating mood and they're busting schools of fish, you can throw whatever you want in there. But when they really think, when they're in a, a fish eating mood, they're really hungry, and you throw something that looks like a fish, like a game changer, you get some of the most backbreaking, walloping takes you've ever had. 
it is incredible to be pulling a game changer and have a fish that weighs maybe a pound. It feels like it's going to break your rod. Like it is, they eat it like it owes it money. It is oh, incredible. Wow. So if you're looking for a really good take on a fly, use a game changer. I, that's not the go-to one. That's kind of once you find the school of fish and you're fishing for them and they tend to be pretty active, you can switch to that. But Clouser or a jetty worm is going to be your searching flies. Okay. So those are your flies and talk a little bit more now, take it to the fly, to the leader line, maybe start us with the line and then talk about getting the gear. So we're ready to get to the right level, wherever they are and talk about how you uh, find them. Yeah. So I've heard of guys using six and seven weights. Um, when I first started doing, I used a seven weight, but the first few fish I caught on the seven weight, then my immediate thought was I am undergunned for this fishery. So I would definitely use an eight weight. Eight weight tends to be the really sweet spot. Okay. So an eight weight, I use an Echo Boost. I guess it's called the Echo Boost Blue, but it was the Echo Boost Salt at the time um, when I bought mine. And it's an eight weight and it is an awesome rod. If you're looking for a very affordable mid-tier rod that casts awesome, that's your rod you want to go with, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, some guys like the Reddington Vice. Some guys like a TFO Mangrove. Some people have their own rods. Or I guess like the Sage Salt HD is a great rod as well. But I really like that for the price point and what I'm doing that echo boost salt is or echo boost blue and an eight weight is the rod i would go with and then when it comes to a reel you don't need a reel that can handle a running fish so you don't need it's not like going after steelhead or anything like that you're going to be stripping every fish in you're never going to be putting them on the reel because if you try to put them on the reel they've already buried themselves in the rock and you've lost the fish yeah as soon as the fish eats you have to start stripping that fly back that fish in aggressively for two reasons one it's going to want to bury itself in the rocks flare all its fins and get jammed in there and you'll just break the fly off the other reason is what i experienced last time i was out there was seals mm. so if you hook a fish the seals immediately go oh we got to get on this and they'll no way it down oh yeah i i was out there the last time i was out there i got there and my girlfriend tagged along she's just gonna she was just tagging along just to hang out and she was sitting on the rocks reading and watching you know watching the wildlife go around and off in the distance around the north jetty i saw this little pod of seals and i went oh that's kind of cool that they're just kind of cruising around looking for like a buoy to hang out on and then i was sitting on the little rock point i was at and cast it out and looked to my left and a seal was probably 40 feet from me just barking mm. at me and yelling at me nice and immediately hooked a fish and it dove right down and i had to strip that fish in fast oh wow. i didn't know if he was going after it or going somewhere else i had no idea so and seals aren't nice from what i can tell they have big teeth and they're and they're big animals so just keep that in mind when you're out there um <laughs> so you gotta strip the flies in fast so you're not putting any fish on the reel but you do want a decent reel because you are in the salt water so I use the Reddington Behemoth, but that's just a personal preference of mine. A Lampson would be great, an Able, um, any other Reddington reel, any Sage reels, whatever reel you want, it's fine with. If it's not a saltwater safe reel, so it's not a sealed drag system or a saltwater safe materials, and even if you do have those, I would always, always, always recommend you should rinse your reel out yeah. at the end of the day. So when I get home from fishing, the first thing I do, the only thing if I can because usually when I get home, it's late. I will just take my reel out, take it to my kitchen sink, spray out both the reel and the spool, make sure you get into the backing just so there's no salt anywhere on it. And then I just put it on my dish rack and I put it back together in the morning because you don't want that salt getting in there, causing corrosion, and then making the life of your reel go from, it could be years like my reels are because I'm taking care of them, or it could be a trip or two and you got to get a new one. 
Right, right. Cool, cool. So real rod, and we're talking nine foot eight weight. Is that lengthwise? Yeah, nine foot eight weight. That's going to be your standard. And then your line, like in most fly fishing applications, is your most important part. So the backstory on fly lines and jetty fishing is here in Oregon, guys have been doing it for years and years and years, but they tend to do it with uh, two different lines before modern lines. And the two lines they used to do it with was just a general uniform sinking fly line. And the issue with those and why people started hating jetty fishing and hated fishing lines like that was those lines are expensive because they're a full integrated fly line. And if you get one that sinks at five inches per second, the whole line itself will sink at five inches per second, which means that the line that's at your feet, that's in one foot of water around the rocks that I've already explained are incredibly sharp Not good. and incredibly slippery. That line is sinking at five inches per second in one foot of water. By the time <laughs> you get your fly back, that line has worked its way around every barnacle, muscle, and oh, jagged man. piece of that rock, and you'll break your fly line. Not your leader, but your fly line. Right. So are you not using a stripping basket? I am. I would say it's required. You can buy them pretty cheap online on Amazon. A-Rex has one that's great. That's the one I use. I use an A-Rex stripping basket, and it's really low profile, and I, I really like mine. But even though you may be stripping the line into a basket, still the line outside the tip of your rod is still in shallower water than your fly that you cast it out. And so the line will get tangled around the rocks, even if you have a stripping basket and stuff like that, because your whole line is sinking at that uniform speed. The other old line that people used to use is they would basically jerry-rig a line. Essentially, they would cut off a chunk of bulk T14 sink tip and then attach that to either backing or a running line or something just and acted like a shooting head. Try to cast it kind of like a spay rod would. The issue behind that is because it's not an integrated fly line and the tapers aren't there because you're just using chunks of material. It's terrible to cast and it's never fun. When you have bad equipment or bad tools or bad whatever it makes it not very fun i remember the first time i went out there someone gave me that setup and i went this is what was i supposed to do with this like it's not good i was it was very frustrating and so nowadays with thanks to modern technology and modern line development there are what i would call a density compensated line i know phil roley has talked about this on his podcast on the wet fly swing network but Fly lines nowadays are density compensated, which means that the tip is going to sink faster than the running line. Gotcha. Which is what you want. You want the line close to your feet to sink at, sink way slower than the line that's closest to your fly. And so the line I use is the Scientific Angler Triple Density 531 line or 135. So the running line sinks at one inch per second, the belly sinks at three, the head sinks at five. And so that means that the tip of my fly line is in salt water they say on the box it sinks up to six inches per second it's going to be less because salt water is more dense so it's probably closer to the four and a half five inches per second and then by the time it's close to my feet it's sinking that probably half inch per second and so that means the line is going to have a more direct contact from the tip of my fly rod to the fly and it's also not going to get tangled up in the rocks to give you perspective i probably go half a dozen times a year out to the jetty maybe more depending on the season and things like that and then I've had the same line for four years now. Haven't broke it, haven't damaged it, totally fine. And it's because you're using the right line for the job. The other line I would recommend, because they're made by the same people, would be the Orvis Depth Charge. Orvis owns Scientific Angler, and so Scientific Angler lines and Orvis lines are very, very similar. And so Orvis has their version of the triple density line called the Depth Charge. So I have buddies who use that, and then I have buddies who use the Scientific Angler one. They have the same color gradient, the same color head 
belly and running line. They're very, very similar lines. So, but that's the line I would recommend to anybody is that's going to be your main go-to line is the five, three, one or one, three, five. I would forget the order of the, the numbers. Yeah, I see it. It's the, uh, so we're talking about the sonar for the SA, the SA sonar Titan 3D. I think that's, it has intermediate and then it's sync three, sync five. Yes, that one is my go-to line. I think I love scientific angler lines in general, and that's just another great one of their of their setup. So yeah, that's good. So that's intermediate. And, and Ryan's again on that. So it's the from the uh, fly up, you're going to have like sync five, sync three, then back to intermediate, or is it the other way around? Exactly. That's the idea. That the section of line closest to your fly is syncing the fastest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Six inches. So six inches per second at the five. Th- uh, sync three is. 2.5 to 3.5 inches per second. And then the intermediate is the 1.25. So that's great. So basically, yeah, that line that's sitting at your feet is only sinking, is not going to get tangled as much because it's 1.25 inches per second. And, and again, salt water is more dense than fresh water. So your line's going to sink a little bit slower than advertised. So even though it's saying up to six, it's probably closer to five just oh, because okay. it's salt water. And then when it comes to my leader, you're going to want to go with a shorter leader. And most guys just use a level leader. So they just tie straight to their welded loop. They'll tie a chunk of 15 pound fluorocarbon and then go straight to their fly. That's a really down and dirty, easy yep, peasy, just straight straight leader. I do it a little bit differently. So I do mine. I get a piece of probably a one foot section of 20 pound fluorocarbon. And then I tie to a swivel and I use a specific swivel called an Invisa swivel. And it's spelled kind of just how it sounds, an invisible swivel, but Invisa swivel. And the InvisiSwivel is a weird one-off product that I found from somewhere at some point. And it's a swivel made out of fluorocarbon. Oh, really? Yeah. So what? it's a fully injected molded. Yeah. It's really, really cool. And it looks like a, it almost looks like a buckle. Yeah. It's a really a cool thing. It's like a mushroom shaped uh, male end that goes into like a cage yeah. area. And that's how it swivels. And so it's just mold. It's like, it looks like it's almost 3d printed that way or something. I don't know how they do it, but you can buy them in different breaking strengths. So they have like 12 pound, 25, 50, hundred pound, and they just range in sizes. Wow. And so the reason why I add a swivel is because your fly is probably not twisting in your retrieve, but it's definitely twisting in your cast. So as you do a back cast and a forward cast, your fly is spinning through the air like an arrow which is good because it helps it fly through the air better. But what happens is that twist, if you don't have a swivel, gets transferred to your fly line. And then you have the chance of your core of your fly line delaminating from your coating of your fly line. Because you're adding this twist, you're adding wear to the fly line. And so I'm a big proponent of swivels in a lot of my fishing. You can get metal swivels that are very, very tiny that break at 50 pounds. So most people will never deal with them. I like the Invisa swivel because it's made out of fluorocarbon. It has a neutral density, so it doesn't sink my fly any more than it does help it float. And plus, it allows me to have that 20-pound butt section to help the turnover of the fly, and then I can put usually between 3 to 5 feet of anywhere between 10 and 12-pound fluorocarbon for my tippet. And so 12-pound is probably good. What I have seen is guys will get, um, they'll use too heavy of a leader material. Most fly lines have a core strength of about 25 pounds. And when you deal with lingcod, like I mentioned, the reason why lingcod are so hard to land isn't because they're so strong. It's because of their teeth. I mean, the strength is, a, is in part of it, but their teeth are very sharp. So if you're using 12-pound fluorocarbon, you just have to get really lucky and hope your fluorocarbon never touches one of their teeth and just gets cut. So what a lot of guys will do is they go, oh, I'm after lingcod, so I'm going to use a big giant fly. I'm going to use a 6 or an 8 or 12-inch fly, and I'm going to use 
like 40 pound fluorocarbon. So that way, if a tooth does touch it, it's not going to break through. Or I'm going to use a wire bite section. Yeah. But you never want your, your leader to be stronger than your fly line, right? Exactly. Because what happens is if you then hook something on the bottom, which it's the bottom is covered in debris and rocks and things like that, you want to be able to break it at your leader and not at your fly line. And I've had guys lose their entire fly line. Just it has to, they break their, they stand on the rock, they pull up all their slack, they grab their rod and they start walking back to the car and eventually it snaps, but it doesn't snap at the loop. It doesn't snap six inches from the tip of the fly line it, it breaks it you know anywhere between the belly and yeah. the running line that's another good reason why it's probably to have uh yeah that swivel because it might break at the swivel too it's your weakest knot right is where it's going to break typically right and so if the swivel is a 25 pound breaking strength and it's attached with two knots i'm hoping that will be the fail point and not my fly line so that's why link cotter is so hard to land is because if you use or they're so hard to fish for because if you use bite wire Bite wires, you know, 40, 50, 60 pounds, you know, typically it's really strong. And if you're using heavy fluorocarbon for the same reason, you have to add almost like they do when they do tarpon fishing, they'll add a section of, of like eight pound leader material in the middle somewhere. So it has a breakoff point. So if you did that, it's going to make it harder to cast because you have this weirdly, you know, your leader is going to have a different softness or stiffness through the whole leader setup. But at least you'll have a point where it could break off at. Yeah. You want to have that break point. You have to have it. It's just, unless you like spending $100 on line every season. No. Which I don't like doing. That's not good. We don't want a bunch of scientific angle lines floating around down there. So no. what's your uh, not tying the fly on to uh, onto your leader tip it? So it's either between just like a, a standard clinch knot or a non-slip loop knot. If I fish that game changer, it's definitely a loop knot. Yeah. The loop is, seems to be the... Seems to be, especially for the bigger flies, it just seems like that loop just gives it a little more action. But so now you got your gear, you're all set up, you have your fly, you got your line. Now talk about you're sitting there on the jetty. Where are you standing on the jetty? Are you like going over the top, down near the water? How are you doing this? And then, you know, are you casting straight out, straight down? What are you doing? When it comes to the actual fishing, I kind of want to touch on one thing before we get into that. As I said, it is, it is a dangerous place. Um, I don't want to undersell that at all i would rather right. oversell it than undersell it and when it comes to like the meetup and fishing i have a big long disclaimer so things that i would recommend when going down the jetty is studded boots of some nature and if you can't do that just boots because you don't want to go out there in your crocs or your flip-flops or your birkenstocks you want to go out there in, in real shoes real boots and waders i never wear waders because if you fall in and your waders fill full of water it's going to be really hard to get out so I don't wear waders personally. I wear pants though. I never wear shorts because again, sharp, slippery. You want to wear layers. It's the Oregon coast or the Pacific Northwest coast. It's going to be, it could be very sunny when you start fishing and it could get very cold by the time you end. Um, and then the other safety stuff, you want to have a whistle or a sounding device of some nature. I always bring headlamps and flashlights, um, some kind of eye protection. So I wear prescription glasses normally. So when I'm fishing, I have prescription sunglasses. And then when, if I fish into the evening or at night, I will switch those out back to my prescription glasses because you never know where the wind's going to blow or push your fly. You don't want a fly coming back and hitting you in the eye. So you want some kind of eye protection. And then the thing that might be the overkill, but I'll tell you my mom, my girlfriend, people who like me, <laughs> like that I do this is I wear a life jacket. I was just going to say that was one thing that, you know, it's an extra layer of hassle and weight and whatever, but it seems like the one thing that would you be happy to have on if you're swimming. 
Right. And then I also bring glow sticks that I'll break one if I'm there late at night and I'll stuff it into the life jackets just so I have. So if I'm fishing with anybody or if, even if I'm not and I'm fishing with nobody, at least someone can see me if I'm hollering and if I fall in or something like that. I've never fallen in. I've never gotten close. I don't take those kind of risks, but you never know. You might be there. Yeah. If you did and you know where you're at, I mean, you're depending on the tides, if you got a strong outgoing tide, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the tide could, you could be out in the ocean in a matter of seconds, probably. Right. Right. A big shrimp boat could come by, wash a wave up, knock your footing out, and then you're just in cold Pacific ocean water. And it's nice to have something to help you float. It's nice to have something that helps people see you. And then, as I said, the sounding device, the whistle is a big deal because then people can hear you from everywhere. So treat it like you're on a boat, even though you're not. And I wear my life jacket the whole time and I look like Mr. Safety Man out there, but I, I'd rather be safe than sorry. And then the benefit is, is I got a nice life jacket where it has lots of pockets on it. Yeah. So I'll put some of like the number one flies I'm going to use in one pocket. I'll put snacks in the other. I'll put a leader material. I clip on a pair of cutters, things like that. So it turns into more like a fishing vest that happens to help you float than a life jacket. What do you use for your, uh, your life jacket? Like, do you have a brand? Oh gosh, I have no idea. I bought it on Amazon. It's a tan and red one. Okay, I was gonna say I'll give a shout out to NRS because they're a great company, and I know yeah. I don't have one of these, but they have a great. Um, the Chinook is kind of a well, I guess the Chinook's one, but I think they do have like a fishing or you know type vest, so it's lots of pockets, stuff like that, and it's a great vest with lots of flotation. Yeah, it works out really well because I use a waterproof backpack. I use a drift waterproof roll top backpack when I go out there, so it'll have my fly box and my water bottle and leader material and things like that in it but then i'll leave it you know 15 feet away from me so i'm not wearing it while i'm casting and then i will put three or four flies my spool of 12 pound tippet in there and then on my belt i have a pair of uh, dr slick saltwater pliers that have cutters on them so i'm kind of set for an hour or two if i'm going to stay in that one spot and i don't have to keep going back to my backpack and keep checking and you know grabbing like if i break off a fly or I feel my tippet and it's frayed and I need to put new stuff on. I don't have to go back and get new tippet. So it's nice to have little pockets and stuff so you can be a little bit more independent and you're not anchored to a backpack or a, a pack of some nature. Yeah, exactly. This is great. This is great. I'm just looking a little more at the... Uh, so there is one, uh, the Astral, the Sturgeon Personal Flotation Device from NRS, and it actually has a nice big fly box pocket. So there's there's some good features. Okay, so you got the life jacket on, and then so as you're there now, talk about that. You're coming up to these rocks. So first of all, yeah, you got to find the area, the deep spot. So you're on a deep area. Then what do you do? What's your first cast uh, there? So your whole jetty is going to have fish on, or it's all going to be fish habitat. I don't want to say fish on it because I'm not going out to the far tip. As I said, I am. If you look at Google Maps and you look at the South Jetty in Newport, we'll use that as the example and you see the vault toilets that are there. And if you drew a straight line from the vault toilets out to the bar, out to the jetty, that's as far out to the ocean that I go. So I'm not going all the way to the tip. You can. The problem is, is the jetty wall gets very, very, very steep, and then you don't have any back cast, which means you don't get a cast as far, but the fish usually aren't that far out. The benefit to going out further, going out further means either less people and bigger fish, typically, the con of going out further is it's more dangerous and it's more uh, labor intensive to hike out that far because the trail soon turns to just giant boulders and those giant boulders are the size of cars and you got to climb over the top of one and then down the other and over and you're carrying your gear and you got your stripping. So 
there is a you know a cost benefit analysis that you can do on it. For me, I have found that if you look at the South Chitty and Newport, there's all these fingers. I don't go out on those fingers because at low tide they're exposed and high tide they're underwater and I don't want to get trapped on them. So what I do is I just stay to the general main jetty wall and I might sit in the armpit of one of those fingers that we all call them as the fingers. I might sit in the armpit while I'm fishing, but I'm just right there. I can, I fish to the point where I thought I was going to hook my car on the back cast. I mean, you're not going that far out. You're not going that far away from your car. And I'm getting pretty close to the water though. I'm getting right onto the edge of the water because I don't want my fly line. I want my fly line in the water. I don't want it rubbing on rocks. Right, right. Okay. And then what about the tides? Are you hitting the ingoing, outgoing? What does it matter? So everyone has their preference. And I say this in my presentations that I do for clubs or if I talk to somebody, anything about it. Every guy you talk to is going to have a different rhyme and reason to their tides. Some guys are going to want to go high slack, low slack, outgoing, incoming, <laughs> A high differential, low differential. Everyone has a rhyme and reason. So if you hear me talk about it, you might hear me. And then if you live in the Portland area, you might drive to the Orvis store and talk to Brian and he'll have a different answer. And then if you join the Facebook group and talk to Guy, you might have a different answer. But yep. what I have found personally is starting fishing maybe 30 minutes before low slack and fishing from low slack to high slack. So fish low to high. And the logic I have behind that is... When you have the water going from low to high, and then you have the river pushing water out, you have ocean water pushing in, it tends to mean that the water that you're fishing in is not ripping one way or the other. It tends to be very stagnant, more like a lake. Mm, gotcha. And so that's my logic behind it. The downside to it is, is when you start fishing, it's the lowest. So you have to keep your head on the swivel. I wear a watch. It's one of the only times I wear a watch is when I'm out jetty fishing. Because I know when the low tide is. And so let's say low tide is 8.30. I'm checking my watch. It's 8.25. It's Now it's 8.30. And now at that point, I'm checking the water level to make sure it's not coming up and coming over the top of me. So you just got to be aware of that. When you're fishing high to low, the water is going out faster because you have water rushing out from the tide plus the river pushing it out. But some guys really like that. And the other benefit is, is the water's coming down. The water's never coming up to you. You're always going to, it's always going to get lower and lower and lower. So there's certain pros and cons to that. I have found low to high is my favorite time. Low to high. Okay, great. So low to high. So you're out there and let's just say you're out there in the middle of that tide cycle, low to high, and uh, then you're there. And then what's the cast? Take us there. Like, do you have to cast far? Can you cast right off and just drop it down below your feet? So yeah, it just depends. So it's all about searching. So as I said, it's all fish habitat, but the fish are schooling fish. So they're going to school together. The schools can be thick. So last year, I went out with a buddy of mine. He's a he's a guy who's moved here to Oregon who got really into jetty fishing with me when he moved here. And uh, shout out to Mike. He's awesome because he was the guy who came to one of my fish alongs that I posted on the Facebook group and he was the only guy who showed up. So it was just me and Mike and we hopped on the jetty, we walked our way down and we started casting. And what you'll do is you'll cast and fish a spot for probably 10 minutes. If you don't get any sign of life, you don't get a grab, a pull, a fish, anything the school is probably not there. And so when you're prospecting, you're casting and you'll probably let your fly sink maybe five seconds and then strip it back and change your retrieve. So strip it back fast, strip it back slowly, then do 10 seconds and you're fanning your cast out. So you're checking everywhere. And if you have a buddy, it helps because they can start at the bottom and work their way up and you can start at the top and work your way down. And if none of you catch a fish and nothing's going on, the school is probably not there. 
And all you need to do is move 50 feet, 100 feet, 150 feet, however, how far you want to move and then try again. So what I tell people is you can go to one spot, cast your fly there and just park your butt there and just cast and cast and cast and cast. And eventually the school might come through there, but you don't know if the school is going to come through in five minutes or five hours. Right. So if you start casting and casting and casting and you're not catching anything, if you're in decent enough shape and you're in decent enough health and waiting ability, I would just move. I usually move pretty far. I'll move 100, 150 feet over and then do the same prospecting for about 10 minutes. And what will happen is you'll eventually catch a fish. And you go, okay, I caught one, and it might just be the lone fish hanging out here. But then if you catch two, then three, then four. And so Mike and I did that, and we were fishing. We finally hooked a fish. I think he hooked one, and then I hooked one, and then he hooked one. And then all of a sudden, we were just in the thick of the school. And in about two hours, between the two of us, I think we caught 200 fish. Wow. You know, you're thinking, it's like, so out of those 200 fish... Like what species wise, was it just a mix of everything? All those like, like a dozen species or what was that like? No, it was just all black rockfish. So it's going to be oh, one species. Yeah. So it's all black rockfish. And when you hook one or two or three and they seem to be about the same size, that's what the whole school is. You might have a couple really big ones on the edge of the, of the school, but in the thick of it, when every single cast we cast out there, either we had a fish grab, we hooked a fish and lost it, or we landed a fish on every single cast for about an hour and a half. Wow, this is crazy. And these rockfish are roughly like what, like uh, 12 inches, 14 inches, something like that? Yeah, that's average. And then you're going to catch the big ones are going to be that 16, 18, 20 inch size. 18 is probably going to be your top out on the jetty. And I've gotten two of those. The last time I went in a few years ago, I got one. And they are an 18 inch rockfish is probably pushing three pounds. Dang. And it is probably strong enough to break an eight weight if you're not careful. Wow. Wow, this is sweet. And can you eat? Can you kill some of those rockfish? Yeah, in Oregon this year, and you got to check every year. So with us recording this podcast in October, the season's not closed. It's open year round, but the comfort of the season is kind of closed. It's going to get really cold and windy and stormy and rainy out there. So most guys don't brave it because any wind over 20 miles an hour is going to be really hard to cast in. A good indication is if you see seagulls flying and they... uh are having to struggle to fly against the wind, it's probably going to be too hard to cast. Oh, okay. So they're still casting in the wind. So, and then, so, but if it was December or even January and a nice bluebird day, if you got a great day, you could still catch rockfish out there on the jetty. Oh yeah, absolutely. And so in Oregon this year of 2023, the limit is five rockfish a person per day. And only one of those during cabazon season can be a cabazon and you can keep two lean cod and lean cod have to be over 22 inches. Wow, this is great. I mean, this is it. Like, if you want some fish tacos, you know, you, you get this dialed in. You've got a, a supply problem. I mean, and, and I, I hardly ever keep fish because it's a lot to process fish. I mean, yourself, and at least I find it annoyingly time consuming and messy. But my girlfriend's mom was coming to town, and she's from the Midwest. So when we went out together, we kept a few fish. That way, she could have Oregon rockfish while she's in Oregon kind of thing. I thought that'd be kind of a fun deal. And that is yeah, incredible fish tacos. They're great with pasta. They're great. They're one of the better eating fishes in Oregon because it's a very firm, mild white meat. Yeah. So they're great. Yeah, it's great. No, I can see it, man. I can see it out there. You're out there. You got the you know the kids there hanging out. You know, on the, on the safe side of the jetty, and you're, you're catching a few fish, toss them out to them, and let them process it. I can see. You know. Yeah, there's a campground near the South Jetty, so you could set up your tent in your campground. Oh, there you go. Catch a few fish, go back, 
and have a catch and cook kind of day. Keep a deal. This is sweet. Okay, so so this is kind of the general. So when you're casting that line, and and again, like if you're casting thirty feet, forty feet, is that about the distance that's sufficient, or is there times where you're even casting further than that? So yeah, I, I'll cast further. I'll cast 60, 70 feet if I can. And again, you're able to do that in the bay side of the jetty because there's the more ocean direction, like I said, where I don't typically travel. And then you have the more bay side where the fingers are in the south jetty, just using the south jetty in Newport as the example. So if you have, so if the tide, it's going from low tide to high tide and you're sitting there and the tide's basically going, um, you know, the tide's coming in, but the river's going out. I mean, when you cast, are you kind of casting it based on that? Like either casting, you know, east or west or north or south to try to get your fly? Or does it really matter? You just cast it out there, let it sink and do it. Right. Because the water's not moving very much. You just let it sink. Now, when you have an outgoing tide, plus the river's pushing water out, your fly is almost going to swing. So you're going to want to cast upriver to let it sink down to depth and then strip it back. Okay. Uh, so you're kind of swinging the fly, for a lack of a better term. And then depending on how fast that current's going, you might need a heavier sinking line. You might want a a 3.57 line. Just because if the current's moving so quickly, it's not going to allow your fly to sink into the zone. Or by the time it sinks in the zone, it might only be in the zone for a couple seconds. And yeah, you want it okay. in there as long as you can. So for me, when I'm casting... Um, I have plenty of back cast room, so I can cast really far. And because I'm using an integrated fly line designed for the rod, designed to cast the flies I'm casting, I can do that. I can cast really, really far if I want to. But I've gone out there with the fish along group, and there's guys out there who had never, ever, ever cast an eight weight before. And they're casting 20, 30 feet, and they're still catching fish. A really good way to get fish up closer to you is... So I do a lot of fishing at night. Uh, in Oregon, there's only a couple places you can fish at night. So you can fish Miller Lake, which is in southern Oregon. I think there's one other lake you're allowed to fish at night. And then the Oregon coast lets you fish at night, uh, according to the Department of State uh, Fish and Wildlife. So when you don't really get that opportunity to fish at night, I use the jetty for it. So if I can time sunset and low tide at the exact same time, that is a primo time for me. And a really good way to get fish to get up closer is to use a lantern or a floodlight. Oh, wow. So I have a Milwaukee floodlight that just uses, you know, the Milwaukee batteries in it. But I've seen guys use like Coleman lanterns and run propane. I've seen guys just use LED Harbor Freight style lights. You can use whatever you want and you put it down close to the water and you just shine in the water as bright as you can get it. And it just sits there. And what it does is it brings in plankton, which then brings in anchovies and smelt and herring to eat those. And then the big fish will come in to eat those. And I have found that you don't really catch more fish. You just catch fish closer. And can you see them? Can you actually see them? Is it that close? Oh, yeah. I've seen it where you're pulling your fly in. And just like in Stillwater where you're supposed to fish the hang. Yeah. You'll hang your fly there and they'll come up and grab it. Or they'll miss it or whatever. But you can get them up like right at your toes. This is cool. It only happens really at night. It, you can't really, obviously, when you have the sun, it's really hard to compete with the sun. So the floodlight doesn't do much. But in the evening, the fish are nocturnal. They're much more active in the evening. The downside is you're not going to catch any lingcod. Lingcod are not active at night. Oh, okay. Um, so you're only going to catch rockfish. But you could catch, as I said, with Mike and I, when we were out there, um, we caught 300 fish between the two of us. We just couldn't stop catching fish. It was just... Because we got into the school, they were right at our feet, basically. We didn't have to cast very far. We didn't have to cast well. It didn't matter what fly it was. So if you can get the school to come in and check out why is there all this bait here, you might have 
a fish after fish after fish after fish moment kind of thing. And I don't know how long they'll last. As I said, mine last time I had one of those fish frenzies was an hour and a half, but it could last 20 minutes. It could last three hours. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So this is good. And, and then on the inches per second, again, let's talk about that. So you're trying to get to that level. I mean, there's different depths, things like that. But if you're out there, do you just start with, okay, I'm going to do a five second count and then do strip in and talk about the strips like, or, and then also do you do different, like 10 second, 15 seconds to get to that right level? How do you know when you're at the right depth? Yeah, it's trial and error doing that. The second countdown, I usually do it in five second increments and you're just in there. You're just enjoying the views, looking at the lighthouse, looking at the bridges, looking at the jetty, looking at the boats going by count five, start stripping in. And sometimes when you start counting, by the time you strip in, you already have a fish on. They've taken it on the drop. Yeah. What's your strip look like? It's evolved over the time. It just kind of depends on what the fish want. But typically, what I have found is if the sun's still up, the fish are going to be low and deep. So I'll probably let it sink 25 seconds. So really deep. Start at the bottom and work my way up. Um, if I get there and it's, you know, sun's out and it's that's kind of the situation. And then I'm stripping back slowly. And what will happen is you'll feel the bottom. You'll start feeling your fly go over a rock and then drop off a rock and then come up a rock and go drop off a rock and, and slowly work its way up to you. The downside is, is you could hook something and it's a rock and you have to break your fly off or you hook some kelp or you hook something that's just too heavy and it breaks your line. But the benefit is, is you will learn if you do it enough and start fishing it enough, you'll actually feel the fish pick up the fly and then you just strip set and you'll, you'll just feel it. The jetty has done a few things for me as far as just translating to other fishing. It's allowed me to fish crayfish flies way more effectively for smallmouth. And way better. So I can actually cast the fly into the rocks with like a sink tip fly in a river like the Umpqua or the Willamette or somewhere like that. Fish the crayfish fly, let it sink to the bottom and just scoot it over rocks. And I can, I can, now I know what a rock feels like and what a fish feels like. Just because you'll get, the, you'll get lots of practice at the jetty where... Maybe in the river, as you're drifting down, you may not get as much practice. And so that's really helped my fishing. And then the casting, for sure. When you cast at night, you can't see your line roll out and roll forward. You just can't see your cast. And so you have to depend on feel alone. And when you're feeling your line, load your rod, and then responding to that feel, you end up casting a lot better um, when you're casting in the daytime. So... But yeah, when it comes to cast out, you're casting out and I'm doing a very slow, long strip and just feeling stuff. That's with like a clouser or a jetty worm or some kind of heavy weighted fly. Yeah. So you're not having to strip, strip, like do any sort of like fast strip or mix it up. Sometimes that works. Sometimes when they're really active, summertime when the water's a little bit warmer, like end of August, that kind of time, they that can be more effective. Um, but most of the season, most of the time it's a slow strip. And then as the sun goes down and as it gets dark, they get a little bit more active and a little bit more happy and you can go a little bit faster. And then when I'm fishing something like a game changer, you want the fly to do, uh, to perform the way it's designed. So you need it to swim and kick, swim and kick, swim and kick. So you're doing a, a hard strip with a pause, a hard strip with a pause. And they'll almost every single time eat it on the pause. And when you go to strip it again for, to give it more action, that's when you get this like Mack truck hitting take because they've really already eaten it and then you're just backing into it and then they're pushing back on you and it's, it's that's what you're after. And when you're fishing slower and you're more so dragging the fly along the bottom, the fish are just seeing your fly, they're nosing down on it and then just sucking it in. You can feel them suck it in. Oh, you can. And what is the feel? So once they feel them hit it, what's the set look like? 
it's instead of it being like a very solid lock, it's more of like a, it almost feels like it's stuttering. The fly's stuttering, I guess is the best way to put it. And then you're going to want a strip set. Yeah. Just kind of hard or just kind of average. You're going to want to go hard because you're going to want to keep stripping as hard as you can because you don't want that fish to get into the rocks. Oh, okay. Yeah. You just keep stripping. So once he hits, just keep stripping the heck out of it. Yeah. Stripping. And then as soon as you know, you're locked in, lift your rod up and just start stripping. And if he pulls a little bit, they pull a little bit sometimes and try not to give them an inch because they'll take a foot. And if you give them a foot, they're going to take your whole line. So I would, you know, don't give them much if you can, but just really strip the fly back hard. And then after every single fish, if you can do it, if you can remember, I, tr- I mean, I'm not perfect with it, but check your tippet because when the fish is fighting you and moving around down there, it's probably going to be rubbing on rocks and you'll feel it. You'll feel all these nicks and ticks in your line. And a couple nick nicks in there is fine, but if you start getting close to your fly itself and it feels like hair, basically, like it's fuzzy, you got to cut your tippet off and put a new one on or at least cut off that section and tie it again because you'll break it off. This is good. Okay. Well, so we've covered, I think, uh, you know, everything to catch in the fit. I mean, anything we're missing here you want to add to this for somebody that maybe is going to be trying this for the first time? Yeah, bring a lot of flies. The first few times you go, you're going to lose a lot of flies. So bring at least a dozen if you plan to go for a few hours. Um, You might use one fly the whole time and you might use 11. So it depends. Um, Those are kind of the things that I would just be mindful of when you're fishing is is you're probably going to lose flies. You're probably going to lose a lot of tippet. Buy fluorocarbon. Just buy a big spool at like um, a big box store. I, I mean, support your local fly shop, of course, but they sell really small spools of material. You want a big spool. So if your fly shop can get you a big spool of fluorocarbon, get that. Otherwise, buy it in bulk because you're going to get burned through it. Yeah. Where would you buy a, a, a big bulk spool of fluoro? Wherever, you know, sporting goods store, a Cabela's, Bass Pro Shops, Sportsman's Warehouse, a buy mart, a Walmart, somewhere like that. I like cigars. Cigars is typically like the blue label, the salmon steelhead stuff. Oh, okay. That tends to be my go-to. Uh, how do you spell that? S-E-A-G-U-R, I think. Yeah, G-U-R, okay. And it's, yeah, the blue label, the red label tends to be pretty safe for a safe bet. Yeah, and just have fun. Join the Facebook group if you haven't. Even if you're not from Oregon, just join it. People post pictures on there all the time of new stuff that they've caught, new methods they've tried, different flies. I tie mine, as I said, with Steve Farrar blend, but some people use like bait fish emulator, so it's really flashy. Some people use, you know, they strictly use bucktail. They're fine with their flies getting destroyed. So it just kind of depends on what you like. I highly recommend it because it's not going to be crowded. Because if you show up and bring 20 of your friends, you might just see me out there, maybe. Yeah, this is good. This is good. Well, let's take it out. We got the... uh... We got our new segment, the uh, the school winner shout out here. I'm going to do this to our, our last winner of our, our big giveaway. But um, and then I have a few random questions to ask you as we take it out of here. So so first, uh, I want to let you know uh, the school winner shout out is presented by Fishhound Expeditions uh, today. And Fishhound, we did a trip with them um, last year up to Alaska. They're our Alaska, um, you know, kind of guru focus. So fishhoundexpeditions.com, check in with Adam and the crew. And so I guess, and then we're going to give a shout to Connor Baker, uh, on this school. So he just won the Stillwater school with Phil Roy. So this is a big, I think it was about $5,000 worth of, uh, trip and gear. And, uh, and it was amazing. So I talked to Connor, he's from Alabama. So he's going to be crossing the country to meet up with us at uh, Henry's Lake. So big shout out there. So, so back to you now, Garrett, what is your, you know, like trip? I think of Alaska as always a bucket list trip. Like we said, Fishhound does these great remote trips. We did a heli trip in with them, with the uh, Lampson. But 
for you, do you have a bucket list trip still on your list that you want to get to? Oh, oh yeah. There's, I think every fly angler, especially if you go to like the fly fishing film festivals or the anything like that, all of a sudden your bucket list trip list goes from maybe two places to 20. I tie a lot of flies for guys that do international fishing. So if they're going to Mongolia or Christmas Island or the Seychelles or right now I have a guy that's going to Bolivia for Dorado. And so I tie a lot of stuff for people to do that because there's no fly shops in those places and most fly shops aren't going to carry giant trevally flies that look like birds typically. So you got to have a guy who knows how to do that. And so I tie flies for people to do that. But a big thing for me would be either Dorado or peacock bass in South America. Right. Those are two very big I know. Um, trips. I'd love to do Argentina for Dorado, fish the the swamp area or the marsh, kind of doing that. The guy I'm tying flies for, he's going to Bolivia and he's doing the river style Dorado fishing, which is really cool too. But it's just, I don't know. I like the idea of being in a giant wetland fishing for Dorado. It seems really cool. And then I'd love to do either Brazil or Colombia for peacock bass. Yeah. Just because, I mean... From what I've heard, it's just a smallmouth that's just completely amped up. Yeah, there you go. And, every, and everybody knows that smallmouth is one of the great species. So this is oh, awesome. Yeah. Good. Okay. So that, that takes care of that one. we got a couple more uh, random ones here. So we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, you mentioned a couple of great movies, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Goonies. We'll put a link to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest because I think that was Jack Nicholson, right? And he's got this yeah. classic uh, movie part. So we'll put a trailer into there or something. But what's your movie? Do you have a movie type or movie that's kind of your go-to, your one favorite of all time? Oh, well, that's a tough question. I'm a big movie guy. I love Oh, movies. you are? A, oh, nice. Yeah, I watch a ton of movies. It's a great thing to do when you're tying flies. The two recent movies I watched was Prometheus, which was pretty good. I like the Alien franchise. I love Alien and Aliens. Um, and then the other one I watched with my girlfriend, she likes scary movies and I typically don't. And we watched the 2010 remake of the crazies, which wasn't bad. It's just, okay. I'm not a big scary movie guy, but yeah, top five movies. Um, if I pull up yep. my, le- I use letterbox as my oh, cool. movie aggregator. So letterbox is an app that allows you to watch through your TV or something like that. No, it's like IMDB. Oh yeah. I guess is the best way to put it. It's. It essentially allows you to rate movies and then it's a database of all the movies that you've like every with your rating and so movies that are i would say in my top five i love the movie drive with ryan gosling 2011 it has brian cranston it has uh ron pullman it's a great movie really like that movie um the dark knight classic it's one of the greatest movies of all time in my opinion and then is that uh, batman yeah batman yeah gotcha and then Willy Wonka, the original with Gene Wilder. That oh, yes. Yeah. One of my favorite movies ever. Uh, I love Empire uh, Strikes Back. So. Oh, okay. The original. And then, yeah, the original Empire Strikes Back. It's a great movie. Um, cult classic. I love Napoleon Dynamite. Can't go wrong there. I tend to go with comedy and horror and be very subjective. So I, if I had to pick, I'd probably be more of the thriller drama kind of movie I really like. Um, I think the joke is, is... Uh, guys tend to like movies that are three hours of nothing happening and that's the joke with it but like i love there will be blood i mean it's a it's three hours of a man being sad and so yeah (laughs) but it's it's really good (laughs) acting and story and all that stuff but yeah I, i try to watch a lot of movies yeah good 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 okay this is awesome we got a nice list of movies to check out and some of those are yeah those are definitely classics you mentioned uh, we talked a little Stillwater. Would you have a Stillwater tip? We're kind of getting random here, but like uh, for somebody who's out on Stillwaters, we've been talking a lot about that with the littoral zone, but um, what would you tell somebody? Or do you do a lot of Stillwater? 
Yeah, I do do a lot of still water. Um, I'm thinking about actually going out tomorrow. I'll go to a Central Oregon Lake tomorrow. I think I'm still on the fence. I'm, the problem is the fall. There's lots and lots and lots of options. So what do I do? Do I go for salmon cutthroat? Do I try to go for early salmon? Do I go for the lakes? Do I go for get the last river stuff? I get, we got spoiled for choice here. That's the problem. Yeah. So if you're on the lake, if you're going to one of these Cascade Lakes or wherever you're going, you're you're on the lake. Maybe that's the question is like, where do you start? How do you know where to start to start fishing? Well, the tip I would give is don't be intimidated by it because I sure was. When I first thought about still water fishing, looking at a lake made no sense. How are you supposed to know where the fish are? And so I'm a big research guy. My Google Maps looks like a serial killer's wall with the red lines going everywhere. I got things pinned and marked and changed and stuff like that. And so do some research, try to look into stuff. But I mean, I, it's probably going to sound like a broken record with all the still water guys on here, but track the uh the shoals the shoals are where the fish are going to be stay in there in oregon we have a lot of very deep lakes and a lot of caldera lakes so like north and south twin up by wikiup east lake polina lake crater lake these lakes are all calderas so they're very deep and very steep and so the shoals are very small but that helps you because then the whole lake isn't a shoal like some shallow lakes would be so it lets you target where you want to go and then don't be afraid of wind. That's the other thing. Don't be intimidated and don't be afraid of the wind. Yeah, the wind. And what's your, I was going to ask you the two on the tip. So what is the casting tip, whether you're on the Oregon coast on a jetty? Let's just go back to that. You're casting and you're out there with a little bit of that wind. Maybe it's faster than you want. And what's your tip to get that fly out there? Uh, practice and know how to double haul or at least single haul. I think most Oregon anglers don't need to do that because when you're fishing a river, you're fishing the Mackenzie, the Sandy Ams, the Deschutes. You don't need a double haul. You're not casting into the wind or that far or that heavy of a, a setup. So learn how to haul. It will help you a ton. It helps you in lakes as well. And then matching your line to your rod. I think people really, really underestimate how important that is. They think, I got an eight-weight rod. I'm just going to bite eight-weight line. And yes, that in theory should work. But you need to match your, you have your rod has a certain speed. It's either a fast, moderate, or slow. And then your line needs to match that as well. So for example, my smallmouth rig is the same rod as my saltwater, except for it's a seven weight. It's an echo boost salt in a seven weight. And I use the scientific angler Titan taper long floating as my floater line. And those lines, because the Titan taper is going to be a full line size heavier than a typical eight weight. And the taper that's built into it loads the rod extremely well. It feels like I'm casting on clouds mm, with that nice. setup just because it's matching really well. So if you want your rod, your budget-friendly entry-level mid-tier rod to cast like a premium rod, the right line makes a difference. And if you want your premium rod to cast like a broomstick, get a bad line on there. Yeah. And a bad line being just not getting the right weight for the line or just not a high quality. You've just bought like the Rio Gold and you're trying to put it on a Sage Inferno. It's not going to cast right. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to think the rod's wrong. You're going to think the line's bad. It's, it's not going to be fun. Right. So if you match your rod and your line correctly based on their taper and their weight to the rod, speed, and style of cast you plan to do, everything becomes infinitely better in my opinion. Right. And how do you do that? How do you do that without, let's say, I mean, you go to a fly shop, uh, how would you do that if you, let's just take the jetty. So you've got this sonar, the triple density. How would you make sure to balance that right with the right rod you have? 
So I'd say like a general rule of thumb would be a shorter taper. So most fly line manufacturers put the taper either on the box. So if you're in a fly shop, you can look at the box and see the taper. Um, or if you're online, you can, they'll have a picture of the taper. So I would say shorter taper for faster rods, longer tapers. So a more drawn out taper for a moderate or slower rod. Typically that's, that's a general rule of thumb. And then read the box. A lot of people don't read it. They just go, oh, this looks good. This is the scientific angular trout, or this is the airflow, you know, high floater, or this is whatever, you know, Rio gold or Cortland 444 line. So it's, they just grab it and they think that's fine, but they put the information on the box for a reason. Um, no one would grab, if you are trying to find the right box cake mix at the store, you're not just going to grab the first Betty Crocker box that you see. You're going to look and go, okay, this one's a dark chocolate. This one's milk. This one's, you know, you'll find right. the one that you're after. And so look at the box, read it, go, okay, this is such and such line. It says it's weighted a half line heavy with a short taper to help turn over indicators. Okay. Well, in that case, I would want to put this with my faster rod where this other one goes, this is for, you know, short cast loading quickly for roll casting on creeks. Oh, I'll put that on my three or four weight rod. That's more of a Creek style rod. Gotcha. They try to help you the best they can. So you don't have to just buy a line and hope that it's right. So read the box, look at the pictures. The manufacturers put them on there for a reason because they want you to be happy. They want you to get the right line to your right rod. And the other thing is, and what I can tell you as our club was every spring right before the summer season, we have a picnic and we bring out casting instructors to help the entire club. And talking with a casting instructor, the biggest thing that they'll tell you is just practice. Yeah, practice. Practice in your yard, practice wherever. Yeah, it's not fun. Because you're not catching fish, but practice. Yeah, but if you're going to fish an eight weight with a, a giant fly or heavy weighted fly lead, stuff like that, you can't expect just to get out on that jetty with waves coming in and be like on it. You got to practice and have your cast down. Oh, yeah. The, the guy I'm tying flies for that's going to Bolivia, he's going to Bolivia next year. So it's not like it's coming up in a few months. It's next year. And he goes out and takes the flies that I've already tied for him and finds he puts a kiddie pool in his backyard and he casts into it with his nine weights because he wants to be able to shoot 50 feet of line, even though he's been told he only needs 40, but he wants to be able to shoot 50 feet of line accurately with the flies that he's going to fish That's with, sweet. with the rod, with the line, which is nobody does that. So it's nice to see that. That's great though. That's an awesome tip. Yeah. I love that. I love the kiddie pool tip. That's it. And then put a little, put a little pie plate in the, you know, somewhere in there to see if you can hit it right on the pipe. Yeah, put a hula hoop so you get a little bit more accurate, do something like that. I, you know, practice. Yeah, practice. Good. Okay. All right, Garrett. Well, this has been great. We will send everybody out to uh, OregonFlyTying.com if they have questions or maybe want to get some flies for you. Do you have any capacity there? Are you, you know, like if somebody wanted some of these flies tied, maybe some of these saltwater, anything, would you have capacity to do that? Or is that a long? Oh, yeah, yeah. Reach out to me. I'm happy to help you with that stuff. I do... The most recent order I tied was for Euronymph, so I'll do Euronymphs. I've done deer hair stuff. I've done saltwater stuff. As I said, I probably the most exotic one was a guy going to Mongolia, and I tied him giant rats from Mongolia. Mongolia. God, this is great. Awesome. So we'll, we'll send out there, and then we'll just keep in touch with you on everything you have going. And uh, yeah, thanks again for coming on here, Garrett. This has been a great one. I think this is definitely going to inspire you know a lot of people, I think, to get out there on the jetty, stay safe, and uh, and probably catch some amazing fish. So uh, thanks again for all your time today. Absolutely. It was my pleasure. It was, it was a blast. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. 
please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.